Hey everyone, my name's Ming and it's good to be here with you this morning. It's good that, to see that Daylight Savings didn't get to all of you and you made it this morning. Um, but I thought before we dive into the passage, we should pray and ask God for help. So let's uh, pray together now. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, what a wonderful passage you've given us. Um, and we do thank you for this day you've given us to come together and to enjoy your word. Um, please help us to just set aside any concerns, worries, things that are on our mind from the past week, um, and to um, sit under your word this morning and to really take it in. Uh, and might it help us to have confidence in trusting you, um, to worship you, and to uh, be convicted to follow you, and that your son Jesus Christ really is worth following. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when people look at the Christian faith, they examine the things of Christianity and what they believe people tend to get hung up on all the miraculous things that happen. Moses parting the Red Sea for Israel, Jonah surviving after being swallowed by a fish, or Jesus walking on water, healing the sick, and rising from the dead. And the Christian faith contains many miracles, and people get caught up on them all the time, asking questions, raising eyebrows. But of all the miracles you see in the Bible people hardly question at all the greatest miracle of all. It's the miracle that God declares guilty people as innocent. God takes rebellious sinners and calls them righteous. How does that work? How does that make sense? Miracles, they, they work against what we think makes sense. And this goes completely against what makes sense of a good God. And while... In this passage, the passage we've just read, we get the description of someone called the servant. And the idea behind this passage is the answer to the question, through this servant, how can God declare the guilty as innocent? How does God do this? Now, as some of you might have noticed, this passage is amazingly specific in its description of Jesus. But we need to realize that this description of the servant had immediate significance for the nation of Israel and way back in 700 BC. So yes, there's ultimate significance with Jesus, that's true, but it also has immediate significance for Israel back in Isaiah's day. So it'd be, it's pretty strange to think that Isaiah is writing this and, and he's thinking in his head, check this out, it's going to be totally meaningless to you, it'll only mean something in 700 years. See, essentially... The nation of Israel was God's servant. The problem is, though they were meant to represent God, they were totally unfit for the job. They were disobedient, they were idolatrous, and they were essentially just like everybody around them. So if you were to look at Israel as a nation, you'd have no idea that they believed in God at all. So, as I began speaking about a new servant, and this servant would be just one person, a singular so Israel, in a sense, is reduced to one person. And so even though, if you were to read the whole Old Testament, we see Israel as a nation being humiliated, they're sent into exile, and are later restored again, some other ideas that we see in our passage today, the true humiliation, the true restoration is going to take place in the life of one person, the true Israel. One person who is faithful to God, who is obedient, and willingly suffers. The New Testament puts a name to it, and it's, of course, Jesus. 
So we talked, to, we, talked this in more, we talked about this in more detail last week, so if you did miss out, I do encourage you to catch up and check it out online. The sermon was appropriately named God's Servant Part 1. Now in this passage, we're looking at God's Servant Part 2. But it's okay if you missed out, you know, it should be approachable for you all, and I've broken it up into five S's to try to make it a bit more digestible. Five paragraphs, five points explaining how does God justify the guilty through the suffering servant. All those points are in your outlines. So the first point, the summary of the servant. It's seen in chapter 52, verse 13 to 15. Three verses. Check it out. We'll read it together. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. So this part of the passage summarizes the servant's life, but it doesn't really give away any of the details as to why or what's really going on. It's kind of like the introduction to an essay, or, or you know, the blurb at the back of a book. You read this part to help get an idea for what the rest of the book is about, or in our case, the rest of this passage. So let me highlight some of the important bits we see here in this summary. So, the servant's going to be raised up, lifted up, verse 13. You could say that he's going to be elevated or honored. But at the same time, he's going to be disfigured, verse 14. The Kiwi slang for disfigured is munted. <laughs> and we know that munted means beyond repair. God's servant is essentially going to look so irreparable that, we won't even, that he won't even look human. So something weird is, is going on here, kind of like a tragedy. Isaiah is basically saying, you're going to see the servant go very low, very, very low. You'll even think that he's hopeless, failing, but he's going to be successful, verse 13. He's going to be elevated very high, so like a tragedy, there's going to be a big low, and there's going to be a very big high. We also see that he's a figure who will shut the mouths of kings, verse 15, and he will sprinkle many nations. Now, the use of the word sprinkle points to this idea of cleansing, spiritual cleansing, and it's going to be global. It's going to be to many nations. So the servant's going to sprinkle people clean, and it's going to be so impressive that kings are going to stop their mouths and be astounded at him. This kind of made me think of how living in a democracy, living here in Auckland, uh, you know how sometimes or, or very often it can be hard to see or get any real or effective change done. People are always talking and discussing ways that are best to tidy up the nation, all these different opinions trying to make it a better place to live. But when kings, prime ministers, leaders, see the sprinkling of the servant, there'll be nothing left to talk about, nothing left to clean up. The work will be all done. This summary describes a low that will be very low, but there's going to be a high that is very high, and the cleansing is going to go very wide. So the question is, how? How does this work? And like any good blurb or abstract, it doesn't give away any of the goods until you read ahead. So let's read ahead, point two in your outlines. The suffering of the servant. He suffered ridicule and rejection. Isaiah 53 Verse 1 to 3. It should be on the screen. Let's read it together. 
Who has believed that we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So as our passage moves along, I'm not sure if you noticed, the perspective actually shifts now. Our first paragraph sounded like it was, it was God speaking about his servant. But from here, it seems like it's Isaiah speaking on behalf of, of a group, a group of people. There's we language, we. And even more than that, Isaiah speaks in the past tense. This is a device that the prophetic writers used to describe the absolute certainty of something. He speaks about it in the past tense because it will certainly happen. Now, the passage all starts off with the question of who's going to believe? Who's going to have faith in the servant, verse 1? And the effect of having this question is an anticipation that many will not believe the news about the servant. And we see that today, don't we? We live in a city that doesn't understand the news about Jesus at all. If you were to ask someone about who they thought Jesus is, they might simply say, he's the, he's the guy Christians believe in. His life has no relevance to me. You might even find people surprised to know that Easter and Christmas are about him. People know how to rehearse the line, Jesus died for our sins, like it's some line people can use as if God ends up being real. But do they really understand what that means? And so when Isaiah asks the question, who believes this? It's a very good question. But when you read this question alongside the second, it becomes much deeper. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, when you look at Christianity, when you look into the gospel, it isn't some religious idea that, that popped into someone's head and, and they made it up. It's not like Christians are believing simply because it's their preferred lifestyle choice. No, there's a revealer behind the believer. There's a God who reveals so that people believe. And God knows exactly what he's doing. So the writer is asking here, who has realized God's power behind the message of Jesus? Behind every Christian, behind every person that says yes to Jesus is God himself. The Bible tells us that God created the universe with his fingers. The Bible tells us that God performed the exodus with his hand. And here, the Bible tells us that God does salvation with his arm. These rhetorical questions set up this idea, who'd have thought that this was the arm of God at work? And the section goes on to compliment this. Though the servant, he, he began well, he grew up like a young plant, a root out of dry ground, verse 2. He had no beauty, no movie star looks. He's the ugly duckling, the black sheep nobody wants. And rather than being attracted to him in any way, it's actually the opposite. He was despised and rejected by men, verse 3. He was a man of sorrows, someone who's on friendship terms with suffering. The fact of the matter is, the servant is not appealing in any way. He's not what we'd expect as, a, as from God. See, when we think of God, we think epicness. When we look at human interpretations of God, we see 
gold and silver idols, grand paintings. And so, how's anybody supposed to believe in this figure? You'll notice that in this section, there's even a bit of confession. The writer says, we, we didn't value him, verse 3. The writer doesn't think of themselves as a natural believer. And the application for us is that we shouldn't think of ourselves as natural believers either. We judge by looks. We are superficial. You know, there's that old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. We live in a world that might say that, but the actual practice of it is very hard. It doesn't come natural to us. It's probably why that line needs to be told in the first place. On the street where Angela and I are living, there's about six cars that are identical and only differ by color. And they often park just outside our place. So they look like this. This is a screenshot of it. We often joke that they look like toasters, toaster boxes. And I'd never drive one of those. Now, the funny thing is, if you see the car I drive now, it's pretty much one of these toaster cars. I judge based on looks. We judge based on looks. That's the natural me, and that's the natural us. And not surprisingly, it was the natural Israel as a nation as well. Israel chose their first human king, King Saul, because he was tall and handsome. So Isaiah anticipates unbelief from the first hearers of the text, Israel, and he's expecting unbelief from people reading today, us. When we read the New Testament accounts of the number of people who doubted Jesus, had unbelief for Jesus, even had opposition for Jesus, that's the natural us. We would do the same. Don't think that if you were to see Jesus 2,000 years ago, you'd for sure believe him. You'd be keen to follow him. It wouldn't even be close. This servant was despised and rejected by men. We see no value in him. And to this day, we still struggle to see the value in Jesus. So the next question is, if there's nothing about Jesus to draw us to him, how's anybody going to believe? And the answer is, of course, God. God reveals and people believe. So let's see what God is revealing to us next. This is the next, this next part, the substitution of the servant, is at the heart of what Isaiah is trying to say here. It explains to us what the cross of Christ is all about, and it's the central section of these 15 verses. So in Hebrew stories and poems, the movement usually isn't linear. It's not like what we're used to in Marvel movies or whatever, where the climax builds up to some big battle at the end, but instead, the climax is usually in the middle. Things lead into the central point, and things lead out from the central point, and there's mirroring either side. And in our passage, Verse 5 is the center of the center, the key idea that Isaiah is putting before us. So let's read the center, these center three verses together. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. At this point of the passage, 
the writer is no longer simply describing the servant, but now goes into the why. And there's this idea that the servant wasn't suffering for his own mistakes. He was punished for the mistakes and sins of others. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Now, when reading our Bibles, looking for repetition is a simple and effective way of finding out the key idea of a passage. And the kids' talk did a good job of that before. And Isaiah puts it six times in this middle chunk, six times the word our. Verse 4 and 5, he bore our sicknesses, carried our pains. It was for our rebellion, and it was for our iniquities. And the words just, they just get deeper and deeper as the passage goes on. It's as if the real problem is being uncovered. And what's more, this passage is another picture of confession, but this time conversion happening. Verse 4 We thought that God was punishing him. But, in verse 5, there's this revelation that it was for us he was being punished. It's the same people that that thought God was punishing the servant, and it's the same people who realized that the servant was being punished for them. The servant was punished so we might have peace and might be healed. So, We see that the sin is ours, the mistake is ours. All of us are like sheep, verse 6, who have gone astray, lost. And we need a Savior, and that Savior bears the cost of our sins. So let me try to illustrate this. I bought a Greek book for a Hebrew passage. So this is the biggest book I could find. Um, Imagine this hand here is, is me. This is me, and this book here is a record of my life. It's a record of all the wrongs. I've done in, this, in my lifetime. It's on top of me. And just above here, just imagine, here's God. Now, we, now it's not that God is really far, far away. We can't, it's not that we can't know him because he's some distant, far distance away. It's not that we can't relate to God because he's some unknown entity. We can't relate to God or know God because our life's a mixed bag. It's full of different experiences, sometimes very good, but often there's many bad things that happen in our lives. And, and the longer we live, the worse it gets. And so what God does is he comes into this world as a form of Jesus and lives the perfectly sinless life, the life that can perfectly relate to God and a life that can perfectly know God. And since we can't do anything about our guilt, our big-ass record here, what he does is he takes our guilty record and he places it on Jesus. He places it on Jesus so that we can relate to God, we can know God. And what happens with Jesus, when he dies, he dies with this guilty record. He dies with it, and there's our word again, our guilty record. And for us, we can be forgiven with God, we can be reconciled with God, and we can have a relationship with God. That's essentially the idea of the center bit of the text, that the servant, Jesus Christ, substituted for us our sins so that we might know God. Now, I do want to come back to this idea of confession, though. This substitution comes to those who are ready to confess. People look at Christians and they might think, oh, they think they're so holy and goody-good for going to church. But one of the first things Christians say to themselves is that we're not great. We're really broken and sinful people. It's not us, but we've got a great Savior. 
Now, we live in a world that has come to normalize blaming. It's the government. It's the school. It's the police. It's my parents. Just the, uh, just the other day, this week, I was watching some friends play League of Legends, a video game. And as I watched, I found myself doing some backseat playing, kind of like backseat driving if you don't play video games. I kept saying they, they should have done this or they should have done that. And it made me realize the word should so easily slips off the tongue. And if we really think about the times when we use the word should on someone or something, it usually ends up being a blaming word. And I tell you this because I don't want the conditioning we receive in the world, the normalizing of blaming, to prevent us from seeing what we need to confess to God. What we are confessing here is our guilt, our contribution, our lack of innocence. It's that key word again, our. What we are confessing is how we have wounded God and other people. And as we come before God in humble confession, there's a wonderful Savior waiting for us that we can confidently run to. And this all leads us on to our fourth point, the sacrifice of the servant. It was a sacrifice because he was innocent. Let's read Isaiah 53, verse 7 to 9 together. should be on the screen. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the, living, the land of the living, he was struck because of my people's rebellion, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Now up until this point, it seems like I've sort of presumed we all see the parallels with Jesus, but I thought that this passage was a, was a good place to show some of the very specific ones we see in the New Testament. So, pop the few on the screen. The first one is in Acts, Acts chapter 8, verse 30, 30 to 32. Philip, one of Jesus' followers, meets with a man reading from the book of Isaiah. The man says he doesn't understand what he's reading, and if we read on, the text he happens to be reading, verse 33, is, is our passage. And so Philip uses this very passage, verse 35, to tell this man the good news about Jesus. Now, if we move forward in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus in person and calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then if we quickly pop over to Mark chapter 15, we jump to a moment where we see in verse 3 and 4, Jesus is being questioned and accused before, just before he dies. But Jesus, he stays silent. Silent like a sheep before her shearers. We see this in other gospels like Luke, who describes what happens when the situation escalates in King Herod. Luke 23 verse 9. Now in Isaiah 53 verse 9, we read that the servant is assigned with the wicked but was with a rich man at his death. Sounds kind of peculiar there. But in Luke 23, verse 20, 32 to 33, should be on the screen, Jesus is crucified alongside two criminals, one on his left and one on his right, assigned with the wicked. And fast forward towards the end of the chapter, verse 50 to 53, Joseph of Arimathea, a well-regarded wealthy man, took and buried Jesus. 
Now, I didn't go through all those texts, but hopefully you got them down to digest later. And there's many more in the New Testament. These are only some of the parallels we see in our passage. But what I want to highlight here is the sacrifice of the servant. He gave up his life as an innocent man. He said nothing, even though he was innocent, because, as Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, I'll read this one. It should be on the screen. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them, his disciples, the apostles, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. I labor this point because I hope we all see that Jesus himself saw himself as this servant in Isaiah, and he saw his death as a necessary thing, a necessary sacrifice, not just to fulfill Isaiah, but to bring us peace with God. And I hope we all see that we need him too. We need Jesus because God doesn't work on scales, where he weighs up how much good you've done and how much bad you've done. That's not how God works. I grew up thinking that that's how God works. I grew up in a fairly religious, non-Christian family where you were taught you could build up good karma by doing enough good deeds, donate more to temple, pray more, be nice to other people, all that stuff. God doesn't work on scales. But many people think he does. Deep down, people think, as long as I'm not hurting others, if I've done enough good, I'll be fine whatever is at the end. But God doesn't work on scales. He works on spotlessness. Spotlessnessness. Spotlessness. Yes, spotlessness. And you can only get spotlessness either one of two ways, right? You either live a spotless life yourself, and I think we can all agree that we're all a bit past that already, or you can receive spotless as a gift. So in high school, I performed the Chinese yo-yo in a white shirt. Should be on the screen as a photo of me. Took a while for me to dig up a proof photo. And I remember one performance, I had badly stained my white shirt while eating out before the performance. It was so bad that the teacher deemed me unworthy to be in front of the crowd. So what ended up happening was my friend offered his shirt in exchange for mine. He gave up his spot in the performance, took on that cost so that I could perform. Now, I could only take my friend's shirt because it was spotless and made me worthy to perform again. And Jesus can only take on our sin because he's spotless. He's perfectly innocent. And this got me all thinking about the cost of forgiveness. What does it cost us to forgive? How expensive is it for you to say, I forgive you and really mean it? See, we live in a world where we, when we've been wronged, we're told to just suck it up, take a chill pill or whatever. And this is particularly bad for Kiwis, where we often think politeness is, is somehow a replacement for honesty. We might even think a problem will go away if we just ignore it, move on. But deep down, we all know that the world doesn't work that way. When we've been lied to, when promises aren't fulfilled, when trust is broken, when a relationship demands forgiveness, someone has to bear the cost. And the Bible is incredibly realistic when it talks about forgiveness. Sin cannot simply be ignored, and the forgiveness of it is always costly. 
always expensive. There's no such thing as debt-free forgiveness. Someone always pays. And so the question we need to ask is, who's paying? Who's having a debt being canceled? Because as in Isaiah 53, it makes it very clear that it's our, there's that word again, our debt, our, our debt for forgiveness is being paid. Our relationship with God is being fixed. And God himself, through his suffering servant, pays the cost of it. And it's a very expensive cost. Now, no, the funny thing is, sometimes we think that if we can put up with sin, if we can get over sin, if we can ignore it, surely God can as well. We measure God by ourselves, what we can get over and what we think is okay. But it's this exact thinking that holds us back from facing the truth. It gives us no real measure of the real God. And in the end, we, we end up with some fake God. This is perhaps why so many people think there is no God. But when we do that, we lose sight of the true and living God, His unmatched holiness, His incredible purity, and we diminish the truth about sin. God is so holy, so pure, that even one small blemish on our record requires the payment of Jesus' death. Now finally, we come to the end of our passage. The success of the servant. Isaiah 53, verse 10 to 12. Let's read it together. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So I want to first address the elephant in the room in verse 10, where it says God was pleased to crush him. So what's being said here is the servant's death wasn't an accident. It was God's plan all along to crush his servant so that others might be saved. So let's be clear on that. God is pleased because the crushing of his son is all part of the plan. And his crushing means success of the plan. But we also need to realize, importantly, that Jesus, the servant, is a willing sacrifice. So you see that in verse 12? He willingly submitted to death. And just in the section before, we saw that he did not open his mouth and he stood silent as he was led to his death. So this doesn't just highlight his innocence, but it highlights his willingness to go through with the suffering. By choosing, and, by choosing to say and do nothing, the servant is determining, deciding that the will of God is his own will. He has decided that God's plan is his plan. And this is very different to us, isn't it? Where we are often unwilling participants. See, I think of the times where Angela plans Angela's plans for the day is for me to help her clean the house. And I reluctantly you know, go along with the plan or even try to get out of it. But even more than that, I think of the times where we stubbornly pursue our life plans rather than God's plans for us. We glumly look at whatever situation we've been placed in 
and we don't even consider the gospel opportunities right in front of us. We think, we think we're missing out if we were to stay in Auckland rather than go on some OE, but barely consider how God can use us in our own backyards. We might even go as far to think that saying yes to dating some non-Christian guy or girl who ticks all the other boxes is a gospel opportunity from God. All this just shows how different God is to us and how incredible Jesus' willing sacrifice truly is. And God commends his son's willing sacrifice, doesn't he, in verse 12? He commends him by giving him many as a portion and the mighty as his spoil. And even though he was crushed, a guilt offering, essentially a dead man, he will see his offspring, verse 10. He will see light. All of this is, of course, fulfilled in not just the death of Jesus, but his resurrection. Though the low is going to be very low, the high will be very high, and the invitation for his blessing will be very wide. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many. And so the question we need to answer today is, do you get it? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you? Are you part of that many? God is lifting our eyes so we might see our guilt, our contribution. And later on, Isaiah chapter 55, we'll look at that more next week, begins with these words. Come, come everyone who is thirsty. This right here is an invitation that everyone can come out because of the death of Jesus. His blood is able to deal with that that thing or or things in your life that you are deeply ashamed of. There might be things in your life that you've never shared with anybody. But we can know this. We can unashamedly come before God and say, will you forgive me? Because there's a wonderful Savior who was judged, was rejected, and killed for whatever guilt or shame we might have. So if you trust in Jesus' death for you, then you can boldly say to people that Jesus' blood purifies us and makes us clean. A day is coming where God will look at you and see the spotlessness of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you don't already trust in Jesus, no matter how far you think you've fallen, no matter how lost you think you are, God wants you. Come to him, trust him, say yes to Jesus. Jesus willingly gave up his life for us all. And what a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray together now. Dear Heavenly Father, what a convicting and challenging message you have set before us in your word in Isaiah, one that points so clearly to your son, Jesus Christ, and one that doesn't just apply to Israel, but applies to us today. And so as we see the death of your son, Jesus Christ, the the rejection he suffered, the life he lived, and his, his death for our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, we humbly come before you and ask that, will you forgive us? We know that you have done so through his resurrection. We know that you want us. We know that you care for us. And so as we look to your son, Jesus Christ, our spotless savior, we come before you with nothing but his blood and we give you all the glory for that. 
pray that we may continue to live our lives uh, in consideration of your son, Jesus Christ, seeing him as our example, holding on to that. And might you change our hearts, our unwilling hearts, to willing ones that will submit to your plans for our good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.